Good evening. It is good to see you tonight. We are always thankful for your presence and for the privilege that's ours to be here together. So thankful for you and thankful to the God of heaven. If you have your Bibles and look at Luke 24, we'll start here. I don't know if you know, you probably do, this happens, that we are in the midst of about three different um, series of thoughts. I don't know if you're aware of that. And so what we keep doing is going back to visit some of them. We were, if you recall, a while back talking about tips to understand the Bible. And, and so we're circling back a little bit to resume uh, those sermons and those thoughts. And Luke 24, verse 25, 26, 27 is what we'll read. And then we'll talk about some things tonight to that end. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. That is, our Lord, after his resurrection, walking on the road with two of his disciples, discussing him. They are discussing his death and his burial, and uh, they have been told about his resurrection. And so they're having a conversation about it, and he joins them, but he's hidden from their vision. And so as they're walking and talking, they're telling Jesus about Jesus. We thought he was the one. And this is the Lord's response to them. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. You should have believed what the prophets have said. And then there is this verse that's just well, I don't know. It's just fantastic. I don't have another way to say it. Can you imagine walking down the road and having Jesus open the scriptures about himself? Because that's their experience. In fact, later they'll say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? Imagine if you were a disciple of the Lord and the Lord took the Old Testament and walked you through it and told you about him. And he's the teacher. What a Bible study. I mean, that's, that's got to be pretty good, don't you think? And that's the experience. But it's that passage that we want to talk about tonight. These things concern him. So here are some things to know before you're reading the Bible. We'll talk about a lot of numbers tonight. Things to know. These things as you go through your studies. And before we get there, we keep talking about sanctification. I hope and trust that you are beginning to appreciate in sanctification your power and ability as an individual Christian, that you can do what God is asking, that you can become what God desires, that it's within your power to have the mind of Christ, that you can think like Jesus and bring your spirit into harmony with his spirit, to let this mind be in you. That's the nature of sanctification. I hope that you are appreciating, I can do that. It is within me to do what God is asking. I have the ability, I have the, 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 the wherewithal to master myself and bring myself into harmony with God and walk and think like Jesus. If you could nod, wink, blink, something to say, <laughs> I do know that, and that's what I'm <laughs> trying to do with my life. Since we've been away from this study for just a little while, let me just refresh. Here are five things we said earlier, five things to know. Maybe you'll remember them. God is. God spoke. 
God's spoken words, God's spoken known language, God's spoken propositional language. That's the first things we talked about. The second things we talked about was some important keys to remember, and that is the Bible is a book, the Bible has a theme, the Bible is intended to be understood. There's actually a book in the Bible called Revelation. Now, the entire thing is Revelation, but there's a book called Revelation. I want you to understand. I'm going to reveal it to you. That's the nature of the Bible. God wants us to understand. The Bible must be read with the intent of understanding. We're not looking for codes and clues and magical things. We're not. It's intended to be understood, and that brings us to the final thing we said, and that is the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. That kind of hopefully brings us up to speed. Now, as I've said before relative to these discussions, we're not trying to say something so profound that you've never heard it. We're, we're not. We're trying to offer as basic an entry-level uh, material to use as you read and study the Bible. And as a result of that, many of you will know these things, and so count it as review. And those who may be on there early in their journey, well, then take them and begin the building blocks to grow your faith. There are 66 books in the Bible. You would need to know that. It's important. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. We're encouraging, I would, to know the books of the Bible. If you don't know the books of the Bible, start there. Learn the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, learn all the books of the Bible. It would be helpful in your Bible study. It would also be helpful to, to know how to spell them and to know where they are within the Bible. That is very helpful. And so if these are things you're not yet accustomed to doing, give it a try. If you need to, you can listen to songs. People sing the Bible in songs, the books of the Bible rather, in song to tunes. A lot of young people learn them that way. There's no harm. There's no foul. Whatever it takes, learn the books of the Bible. There are two major covenants in the Bible. There are actually many covenants in the Bible. Sometimes the covenants come with signs. The two major covenants are called the Old Testament, the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. In fact, it is the fact that there is a new covenant that makes us have an old covenant. It wouldn't be old if there was never a new one given. But it becomes old when a new covenant is given. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, the Hebrew writer says. With regards to many covenants, one of the ones you'll read early in the Bible is Genesis chapter 9, where God makes a covenant with Noah that I will never again destroy the world with a flood. It's one of the ways we know it was a worldwide flood. We know it was a worldwide flood because there have been other floods. And God said he would never flood the earth again. Now, if there have been other floods and it was a local flood, well, then God didn't keep his promise. And we know that's not true. And so it was a universal, worldwide flood. And God said, I'll never do that again. In fact, there is a sign. The rainbow, the bow in the clouds is, as God says, the sign of the covenant. When you see that, you'll know, I'm keeping my covenant. I'll never again destroy the world with the flood. There is another covenant, Genesis 17. God makes a covenant with Abram with regards to circumcision. And he's made the covenant in chapter 12, and circumcision is a sign of the covenant, is what God says to Abraham. These old, this new covenant, there is two kinds of these covenants. There is a covenant made between man and man, 
Laban and Jacob enter a covenant as Laban chases Jacob for fleeing, saving his family. And when he reaches him, they make a covenant. I will never part or cross these rocks or this land again to do you harm. They make an agreement and a covenant. You can make a covenant between man and man or equals, and then there are covenants made between God and man, a superior to an inferior. These two major covenants, God makes the first one with the nation of Israel. If you have your Bibles, look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. One of the things about the Bible is, as we will talk here in just a moment, it's so unified. And so the things that we read in the Old Testament, we'll see them again in the New Testament. There is such harmony in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5, just notice these first five verses. Then Moses summoned all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Who's the us? Well, we've already read twice Israel. We read that in verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel. He says again, hear, O Israel. Then he says in verse 2, the Lord made a covenant with us, Israel. So that there's no misunderstanding, in verse number 3, Moses says, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers. Who are the fathers of Moses and Israel? That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Moses says is, he didn't make this covenant with them. No, he says, but with us, with all those of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time. Moses is going to be referred to as the mediator of this covenant. The reason for that is, as he says here, I was standing between you and God. And he was. You'll remember in Exodus 20 when the children of Israel become so afraid, they tell Moses, you go over to the mountain and get it. If God continues to talk to us, we'll die. Moses is the one who stands between Israel and God. And that's exactly what he says. I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. Why? For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain, he said. This is the nature of the old covenant, the first covenant. It's made with Israel. Even in the Old Testament, there was always going to be a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 comes to mind, where Jeremiah says there's going to be a new covenant. If you would turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, you will hear the Hebrew writer quoting Jeremiah saying, this is the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, <coughs> excuse me. Again, when we jump into books like this, you should know that they've been, he, the writer, has been talking about the old covenant for some time in the book. And by the time we arrive at chapter 8, he's really making some conclusionary marks about what he's already said. You can see that in verse number 1 of chapter 8 where he says, now, the main point in what has been said, 
Well, the main point in what has been said is that he's been saying it for some time. He's been talking about the fact that there is a new covenant, a new lawgiver, and a new host of things related thereto, a new high priest and new atonement, and on and on he's gone. And now he reaches the point where he says, now, the main point is this, which has been said, we have such a high priest, that too changed. But if you'll go down to verse number 8, he begins to quote, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And you'll notice verse number 9, he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds or into their hearts. You'll remember the first one was written in stone, written with the finger of God, but in stone. Not this one. It will be written in their hearts, on their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Again, one of the distinctive natures in these two covenants by way of difference is that if you were in the old covenant and you were born, you were born part of the covenant. Eight days later, if you were male, you'd be circumcised. At that moment, at eight days, you're part of the covenant. Now, the truth is, you obviously don't know anything about the covenant. You don't know anything about the agreement that you've, been, you've entered into. And you certainly don't know anything about the God who made that agreement. And so he says here, it's going to be different this time. This new covenant, they're not going to say, every man know his neighbor. You're not going to go to people in the covenant and teach them about God. In fact, it's going to be just the opposite. You're going to need to know God before you enter the covenant. And so he says in the very next place, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all will know me. Before you enter this covenant, you have to know the Lord. John 6, 44, 45 comes to mind where Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned comes unto me. If you hear and learn of the Father, then you can come to Jesus. That's the way it works. One of the reasons, quick sidebar, we don't baptize babies for a host of reasons. One is they don't have any sin to wash away. But number two is they don't know. They can't believe. They can't repent. They can't confess. They're not part of the covenant. Can't enter the covenant. And they obviously have no need to enter in the covenant, for there is no sins to wash away. But that will not be the case with this new covenant. Verse number 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13 says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one old or obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is the nature of, at least in part, the differences, some between these two covenants. If we were to go to chapter 9, of Hebrews. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. There had to be a death of the one making the covenant in order for it to go into effect. And so in verse number 16, he says, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. 
For a covenant is valid when men are dead. It is never in force while the one who made it lives. And so when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're reading Christ living, you will hear him say with regards to the activities of people in their own lives and his, he would say, what does Moses say? What do the prophets say? Have you not read with reference to Moses? He would heal somebody and he would say, go to the priest. The lepers who were healed, go to the priest. Why? That's the law. While Jesus is alive, the law of Moses is in effect. But there must be the death of the testator in order for his covenant to go into effect. And so Jesus had to die so that his covenant could go into effect. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. These two covenants have some similarities, but they're different in many respects. When you're reading the Bible, that's what you're going to read. These covenants can be subdivided then into sections. And so it's helpful to know where you're reading in the Bible. You want to know what the books of the Bible are. You want to know the differences between these covenants. And you want to know then by way of subdivision, those 39 books can be broken down into subsets. The numbers would be this, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Those would be the numbers in the Old Testament. What those break down to is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, would be the law. Sometimes you'll read the Torah or something to that effect, but you're talking about those first five books. The next 12 books from Joshua to Esther is the history of the Jewish people. The next five books after that is right there in the middle of your Bible, Job to Song of Solomon, that would be poetry or wisdom literature. And then there are the major prophets, Isaiah to Daniel, five books. And then there are 12 minor prophets from uh, Hosea to Malachi. That is our Old Testament broken down into the kinds of literature you'll find when you're reading. Why is that important? Well, you need to know where you're reading in the Bible. That's important. But you also need to understand all the literature is not the same. Imagine, if you will, picking classes for the semester. And there is a class that says, this class centers around the law. And you say, okay, I want to study law. And right down the hall, your second class is, this class is a history course. Okay, fantastic. I love history. Okay, so I have a law class and I have a history class. And then a teacher says, you know what, you should come take my class. Well, what are you teaching? I'm teaching poetry. You know, you would not expect to hear the same material in each of these classes, would you? You would think that this would be a little difference. I mean, when you read law, if you've ever read a law book, it might not be the juiciest, most richest and exciting. But you might get a lot of, you know, legal matters and do this and not that and this would violate and this would That'd be the nature of what you're going to read. But then you get to the subject of wisdom, and you'll be somewhere in the Proverbs, and that language and that literature is going to be different than law and different than history. And in fact, you might read some things in there that well, could very well be confusing. You, you might read a verse that says, answer not a fool according to his folly. And then 
two or three verses later, you might read, answer a fool according to his folly. So if you're thinking law, that doesn't make any sense. Surely that's contradictory. can't be right, but you're not reading law. You're reading poetry. And in poetry, that makes great sense because poetry then has to do, especially in the Proverbs, with the context and with particular instances where something might be done here and not there. You might say, and you probably have practiced this already in your own life, sometimes people say things that are so outlandish, you just say, hey, man, if that's what you believe, I'm, 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 I'm not even going to bother with that. I'm not going to answer that. That is so foolish. I'm not going to entertain it. On the other hand, somebody might be waxing so poetic and yet foolish, and people are believing it that you say, hey, listen, that is so much foolishness that if you believe that you may have to actually answer it, it would depend. That's the nature of poetry. Contextually limited, you might do A, you might do B. In fact, we have Proverbs our own selves. We say things like, look before you leap. What do we mean? We, we mean take your time and don't make rash decisions and look before you just jump into everything. And then we also tell people, he who hesitates is lost. Well, if you're going to look before you leap, by definition, you'd have to hesitate. What are we saying then? Sometimes you have just got to make a decision. You got to say go and then go. You can't hesitate so much in life that you never do anything. Listen, man, this is the opportunity. This is it right now. Let's go. Well, I don't know. He who hesitates, listen, the opportunity is knocking, and the knock is getting faint. Open the door. It depends. It's the nature of literature in your Bible. You will want to know that. The New Testament has subdivisions as well. There is the Numbers 4, 1, 21, 1. There are four accounts of the one gospel, Matthew through John, one book of history, the book of Acts, 21 letters or epistles, Romans to Jude, and then one book of prophecy, the Revelation. That said, let's turn our attention then to a third major covenant in the Bible, and that is the promises to Abraham. If you'll go back to Genesis chapter 12, as you're moving through the Bible and as you're studying the Bible, it's important to understand these three promises. They are so key and critical to the rest of the Bible and what it teaches. In Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, the Bible says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in these shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These promises to Abraham really underscore what is the major covenant in the Bible. I know we talk about the law of Moses and the new covenant of Christ as being the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's absolutely true. But what the Bible is going to say is the promises to Abraham supersede the law given at Sinai to Moses that these promises are actually more important, more significant than the law given to Moses. These promises, in fact, are that which is ultimately going to bring us to Christ. You have three parts to this promise. There is, as God says to Abraham, I will give you a land. We know that as the land of promise or Canaan. 
God says to Abraham or Abram at the time, I'm going to give you a land. He secondly says, I will make of you a great nation. That nation will be the children of Israel. God will make them a great nation. They will grow in Egyptian bondage. When he brings them out, those will be his people. And what we'll read the rest of the way, those next 12 books of history, will cover God's people's history. And then there is the seed promise, the seed of Abraham. If you have your Bibles, go over to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is discussing this very thing. Remember that the Jews, some of them, in the rejection of Christ, when the church begins in Acts 2 and the gospel begins to be preached to all the world, it starts out Jewish at first. In fact, all the way over to Acts 8, with the Samaritans, who are half-Jews, over to Acts 10 with Cornelius, the first Gentile. Other than that, the church had largely stayed in Jerusalem, and it was only Jewish. The Jews did not want to give up Moses. And even those who came into the body of Christ simply accepted some version in their minds of Jesus, but they held on to Moses. And they sought to bring their beliefs of Moses into the body of Christ. And so Paul says, there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And then in Galatians 2, he says that there were false brethren. Please hear that correctly. Paul doesn't call them, as we would understand it, simply false teachers. Now, they are that, but that's not how he calls them. He doesn't simply say false teachers. He says they were false brethren brought in unawares to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, and bring us back into bondage. These are Jewish people who believe have come into the body and seek to bring Christians back under the yoke of Moses. To that end, what you'll read a lot in your New Testament is Paul's explanation of why that's wrong. His defense of the Old Testament scriptures bringing the Jews and everybody else to Jesus. The very thing they're rejecting is what the Old Testament said would happen. And Paul defends that. And Paul explains that. So, with that in mind, let's jump in here in Galatians chapter 3 and read some verses. Verse number 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, please understand that, that the promises to Abraham included all the families of the earth being blessed, not just the Jewish people. It includes the Jewish people, certainly so, but it includes all the families of the earth being blessed. He says, in fact, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand 
to Abraham. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus hadn't died by a long stretch if we're in Genesis 15 and 12, rather, when God says this to Abraham. So what in the world does he mean? He preached the gospel to Abraham. When he explains, verse, the end of that verse, all the nations will be blessed in you. The good news is that Abraham's seed is going to bless all the nations. That's the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Seeing this before, God preached to Abraham the gospel. So then, verse number 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Coincidentally, this is the heart of the argument. Does the law justify or does faith justify? That is their argumentation. We have the law, and therefore we're justified because we have it and we're keeping it. And the writer, Paul, and others are saying the law can't justify. No deeds of no, no flesh is going to be justified by the deeds of the law partly because the law by itself was not designed to justify. It was designed to point out sin and make sin exceedingly sinful so that you could see your need for Jesus. You can't get there by yourself. In fact, one infraction of the law, that would be sufficient to condemn. And there would be nothing you could do to get back from that. I think we've mentioned it. If the speed limit says 55 and you go 56, you're a speeder, and you're a speeder for the rest of your natural life. If you say, well, I've driven 54 the rest of my days. I've driven 64, not 65. I've driven 68, not 70. I've never again broken the law. Well, it wouldn't matter. You broke it. And the law says you broke it. Now, what do you do to solve that? If it's just a matter of law and works, you can't get back. And so what Paul says is the just live by faith. Faith, we trust God, we trust Christ, we trust the sacrifice, we trust Him. He allows us to be justified by faith in Him, by His blood. That's justification. That's Paul's argument here. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, who who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's the sum of everything we've said. It's in verse 15 and verse 16. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What's the point? When humans make covenants, when we draw up our last will and testament, his point is nobody can come along and add something to it. Nobody can come along later and disannul it or take it away or make it not, 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 not uh, sure and secure. Nobody can do that. He, he moves from that to God's promises to Abraham. He says in verse number 16, Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, to many and to your seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, which is Christ. 
Why am I telling you this tonight? If you're going to study and read and understand the Bible, you have to know the promises to Abraham. You have to know how significant they are to the rest of the Bible. We're in Galatians talking about Genesis. Paul's point is it's connected. All the way through from Genesis 12, in fact, what he's going to argue next is the promises that God made to Abraham came 430 years before the law he made to Moses. And therefore, the law of Moses can't supersede the promises to Abraham. And while the law of Moses was made, Deuteronomy 5, with us, Israel, us, who are all of us here alive this day, not with our fathers, the covenant, the promises were made with our fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that supersedes this. In fact, he will say as much. Notice verse 17. What am I saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. If you were to continue to read the end of this chapter, slide over to verse 27. Notice, and sometimes people say things like, well, y'all get the baptism from anywhere in the Bible. I mean, you people are always talking about baptism, baptism, baptism. I mean, you're just a hobby. We're not like one man I heard about who uh, he preached about baptism every week, and even the elders went to him and said, hey, you know, we were wondering if you could preach about a, a, a maybe start in Genesis and just preach about creation. He said, sure, I could do that. And so he got up and he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the deep is water, and that brings me to my subject, baptism. We don't actually do that. We don't, we don't do that. We don't go out of our way to work our way. To be, we don't do that. And the reason we don't do that is we don't have to. <laughs> we don't have to do that. Why not? Just read the Bible. And you'll just keep running into it yourself. Now, it appears that nothing I've said so far this evening should lend us in baptism, land us on the subject of baptism. After all, we've been talking about the promises to Abraham and the covenant of Moses and why that one is this one and what those, and yet, Paul does. Slide over verse 27. We'll not take the time to read everything in between, but look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know who connects baptism and Christ to the Abrahamic promises? That would be the Apostle Paul. Through inspiration, he does that. Which means if you're not Abraham's seed, then you're not an heir of the promise, and you're not Christ. And if you're not Christ, well, then you're without hope in the world. You see, it's not us. It's just what the Bible teaches, and even in Genesis 12 all the way to Galatians 3, the apostle Paul says he had one seed in mind when he made those promises to Abraham. We have the land, Canaan. We have the nation, Israel, and now we have the seed, Christ, and Christ is the Savior of the world, and you need to get into Christ. How do you do that? Well, you got to get baptized. There is within the Bible one story 
There's only one thing that God is doing, and this is so important. Let's read it in a few passages. Look at Paul's summation of it in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse number 17 down to verse number 19. Now, we're jumping into passages, but of course, you know, you, if I'm in chapter 5, you got to read chapters 1 through 4 and then 6 all the way to the end of the book. But chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we just heard how to get there, Galatians 3, 27 to 29. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse number 19, namely this. What is the namely this, Paul? What's the point? He says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. When you and I share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the word that somebody has an opportunity to be reconciled to God. In fact, Paul will say later, we beg you, be reconciled to God. How do I do that? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was God doing? He was working through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. We started with Luke. Let's go over there again. Look at Luke chapter 24. I mentioned that conversation that Jesus was having with those men as they were walking down the road to Emmaus, and he began uh, that passage that we read, 25, 26, 27, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. He continued that discussion. Slide over to verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That really is the Old Testament. There is the law of Moses, there is the prophets, and there is the Psalms or the wisdom literature. And by prophets, I realized I subdivided major prophets and minor prophets. It wasn't originally that way. It would have just been prophets. It would have been 17 of them instead of five and 12. But that's the Old Testament. And Jesus says, all of that back there was written about me. Well, that's exactly what Paul says God was doing. There's only one story in the Bible, and this is it. See it again in Acts chapter 3. This is after the great sermon in Acts chapter 2, where the apostles preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then they quoted prophets, David, the Psalms, and others. And then in Acts chapter 3, they go up to the gate, they heal the man, and that provides them another opportunity to preach. But what would they preach? Begin reading at verse number 14. Peter and John say to these individuals, but you disown the Holy One and the Righteous One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. In fact, we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name is the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But the things which God announced beforehand, listen to it, by the mouth of all the prophets— 
that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled it. Therefore, Acts 2 and verse 38 is Acts 3 and verse 19. Therefore, repent and return, convert, be converted, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of, he says it again, his holy prophets from ancient times. But he gets more detailed. Notice verse 22. Moses said, this is Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 18. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Moses is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. In fact, Jesus is a prophet like unto Moses. Verse 24, he says, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. When we say the Bible tells one story, one event, this, they say the same thing. There is one major problem in the Bible, and that problem is sin. And that problem has to be addressed. And what the Bible is going to set forth is humans can't solve that problem. If we were left to ourselves in sin, we would be hopeless and helpless. Paul would write in Romans 5, 6 through 8, we were without strength. There's nothing we could do about it. In Ephesians 2, he would say we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In chapters 11 through 13 of that book, chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says we were without hope and without God in the world. That is the major problem. The wages of sin is death, eternally so. Which brings us to the next thought, and that is there's one solution for sin. There aren't a hundred solutions. There's not you pick yours, I'll pick mine. That's not the way the Bible treats the subject of sin. The Bible makes the case that there is one sacrifice for sin for all men for all time, and that sacrifice is Jesus. Interestingly, as you read through the Bible, Jesus Christ will be referred to as a lamb in the New Testament. Question, where are you to learn what happens to lambs? That would be in the Old Testament. You're supposed to learn what happens to lambs and the use of lambs in the Old Testament, so that by the time you get to the New Testament and John 1:29, the Bible says the next day John sees Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, you and I are supposed to understand that Jesus is here to be sacrificed. Well, that's the one solution. There aren't two. The Hebrew writers would say the same thing, that he did this once for all, the Hebrew writer would say. There is then one plan of salvation, and that is we are saved by grace through faith. And so it behooves us to understand this is, these things are really necessary before you start reading. You'd be helpful to know these things because that's what you're going to be reading. A lot of times people open the Bible and they treat it more like a, more like a book of spells. 
they just randomly open it, find a verse that, quote, speaks to me. They read it, and they say, yeah, I got my word for the day. Friends, that's not how you use the Bible. You and I are charged with understanding the revelation of God so it can then change us. It's living, it's active, it's able to equip, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, to equip us thoroughly unto every good work. These good works are the works of God that He reveals, that we learn, believe, and then act on. But without the knowledge of His Word, the second and the third parts are going to be impossible for us to do. We began by saying, I hope, that as we're reading and studying these things about sanctification, you understand you're able. And we talked this morning about maximum effort. I hope you did understand that I wasn't purely talking about physical exertion. It's great to have one good lift and max out. That's great. But I'm hoping that you imagined that that was your spirit maxing out in your spirit's ability to get closer to God. That's the goal of sanctification. We began with an understanding of his word. We apply it to our lives as best we can. We'll talk some more about sanctification. We'll talk some more about Bible study, and we'll say other things along those lines. We didn't exactly talk about it, although we did get to it in Galatians chapter 3, because you people are always talking about baptism. <laughs> That's what they say about it. Well, the reason we do that is not because we believe the water is magic. We simply believe that we have to trust God and do whatever God says. Way before baptism, you must hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We talked about our hearts this morning. That intellect is involved. We have to process the right information, which makes getting the right information so very critical. If you understand that Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, he rose according to the scriptures Thursday, then you're off and running. You got to believe that. And then with that belief, you, that hearing, you believe that Jesus died for you, he rose, and then you have to repent. You have to change your mind about the present course, the way you're living, the way you're processing life, the, the goals, the aims, the ends, all of that is involved. And the Bible says, quite frankly, in sin, we're thinking wrong. And so we're doing wrong. And when we hear the good news and believe it, we change our heart and our mind. We repent. We confess the name of Jesus, and then we are buried with him in baptism. Friends, long before we are buried with him in baptism, we are already making changes before we get there. And so we don't arrive at baptism as if the water is going to do something for us by itself, and we just believe that, no, that's not how we arrive there. Long before we reach this water, we should be believing and changing our heart and our mind and confessing the name of Christ. And based on that, we get in the water because God said to do that. We emulate the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and then we rise and walk in newness of life. And friends, if you've never done that, you need to. But if you have, I just hope and I hope and I hope and I pray that you will appreciate how empowered and capable you are of being like your father. And that he wouldn't ask of you that which you couldn't do. And that the example that Jesus gave and left is one you, as an individual, can live like. I hope you'll take up the charge and take your life 
into your hands and wear your spirit out with full exertion in the life given to Jesus Christ. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.